This is Publishing Talks, a podcast about books and publishing. I'm David Wilk, your host. Today, I'm talking to Kyle Schlesinger. He's the um, founder and publisher and operator of Cuneiform, which publishes poetry and artist books uh, and uh, in based in Austin, Texas. Uh, how are you, Kyle? Terrific, David. How are you today? I am very well. The sun is shining. I can sort of feel that winter may be coming to an end. So that gives me a, a little hope for the future. Uh, happy to hear it. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I know that you have been publishing now for more than 20 years. I think you started around 2000. I'm interested in, I mean, you're a poet yourself and a, a writer. Um, and I'm interested in what brought you to create your own press, essentially? What inspired you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, before I started the press, Cuneiform, I was living in Vermont and studying at Goddard College. This would have been like the late 90s. And um, I had this deep interest in the history of progressive and holistic education. And one of the um, teachers at the college went to Black Mountain, uh, North Carolina. So I sat down and asked him some questions about what it was like there at that time. And one of the things that interested me was that everyone who went to Black Mountain had a job, chores, you know, gardening or um, plumbing or uh, cooking, whatever. And his job was to um, be the campus printer. And I said, you know, Will, you know, um, what does it mean to be the campus printer? I thought a printer was a um, gray box that sat next to your computer and spit out paper. And he said, no, no, no. Uh, like before that, there was um, this machine called a letterpress. So he showed me some of the things that he had printed when he was a young man. It was beautiful, beautiful work. So I took out an ad in the local classifieds, knowing nothing about letterpress, and just said, you know, wanted letterpress. And someone gave me a call. So I think it was $200 for a um, turn-of-the-century clamshell press. We just tied it down with chains and brought it home. And you, so you, this is amazing, actually, so that you never really had printed before. You had no teacher, no one to show you how printing worked in a practical way. Yeah, exactly. Um, when we tried to clean the type for the first time, we put it in a spaghetti strainer and dumped kerosene all over it. Oh, you know, I mean, it was just one mishap after another. Wow. So did you then start to investigate? and learn some of the history of printing. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot to learn, obviously, and would not be possible to learn at all. But, um, you know, what I found is that most people who are interested in physical type and printing end up spending a great deal of time learning about their predecessors, you know, the, and the history and the, and those who have gone before, not just in uh, printing, but in, printing of uh, independent presses and artist books and, you know, fine press. I assume that you began at that point, at some point to explore that area. 
Yeah, exactly. It was, yeah, like I said, a lot of trial and error and getting a few of the basic printing guides, sort of more of like the how-to variety. And then from there, you know, started building a library comprised of small press publications and books about books and books about the history of printing and paper making and typography and the theory of the book and all that stuff just sort of uh, accumulated over the years. But yeah, the first question I had was, you know, like on a very practical level, how does this work? Right. And this was before there were all these tutorials on YouTube and stuff like that. Cause it was, you know, sort of like Y2K time. Uh, so the internet was still pretty small. So learning from the book about the book was kind of the way to go. Did you, did you see, find uh, any, um, uh, folks in Vermont who you could learn from? I think Claire Van Vliet was there then. If I remember this right, if I'm remembering her name correctly, she was, a had a press where she uh, specialized in making paper herself. Um, I think I've got that name right. Yeah, the Janice Press. Right. Uh, yeah, at that time I was so young and so ignorant, I had no idea um, <laughs> that she, who, who she was um, or if she would have even given me the time of day because <laughs> you know, she's such a maverick. True, but I, you know, I think at least my experience is most of the printers uh, you know the kind of artisan printers we'll call them who 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 are doing printing for art seem to be pretty comfortable sharing and and helping i mean they may also be you know they don't have a lot of time either but they you know they do help um people like you you know like you were uh beginners sometimes you know they'll take in apprentices and people to learn and help out by doing heavy lifting <laughs> to learning the hard way. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's part of what's so exciting about sort of the, the whole lineage and genealogy of printing is that you can see one generation's influence on another generation and, you know, so-and-so has an affinity for Palatino and then their student starts setting books in Palatino and, and so on and so forth. So there's all this like, almost like DNA in the history of the book that I find totally fascinating. But it is interesting that you, I, I had kind of wondered whether you, when you started, that you started because you had something in mind to aspire to, but it obviously that's not the case. But did that develop over time that as you began to master or, you know, or learn well, um, how to actually do the printing part, um, and you were reading about printing and and presses that preceded you. Um, are there which are the ones that you found inspiring or wish to emulate in some way? Oh, probably the first was Burning Deck Press. I grew up in Providence, or just outside of Providence, um, where Keith and Rosemary Waldrop had operated Burning Deck Press for. I want to say like five decades. So when I left Vermont and got back to Providence, uh, these burning deck books, uh, all printed letter or print all printed letterpress up into a certain point in time when right. they switched offset. Right. Um, I just thought the books were beautiful and I was really interested in, um, the poets that they were publishing. That was kind of how I stumbled onto, um, sort of like what happened after the new American poetry, because I was not in touch with contemporary 
more contemporary poetry at that time. So I just bought everything I could find from Burning Deck at all of the um, used bookstores in Providence. And then I thought, hmm, maybe I'd like to start my own press in, in addition to just being a printer. So that was around 2000 that um, I started making, you know, very modest chapbooks on the letterpress. So, well, that, yeah. So did you ever go talk to Keith and Rosemary? I actually interviewed them for this forthcoming book about this very subject that Ugly Duckling Press will be publishing this spring called Poetics of the Press. And it's a collection of interviews with poets who are also letterpress printers and publishers. So there's been a few books sort of, you know, on the subject of poetry and printing, but, but never a collection or, you know, interviews with small press publishers, that kind of thing. But uh, this book sort of focuses on, you know, the meaning of poetry, you know, to make or to build and the way that we can work with words as um, physical objects, you know, metal type or photopolymer, that kind of thing. And then also working with poems as ideas, you know, building them up one letter at a time. Yep. Well, there is, yeah, there's a tremendous um, kind of natural connection between the letter form and the and poetry. Um, I think Phil Gallo's in that book too, isn't he? Um, yes, he is. Yeah, he's an old old friend and someone I worked with many many years ago. Um, who kind of to me exemplifies that? You know that the his work is uh, uh, using type itself to create um, what might otherwise be, you know, what someone else might call a poem. He That's something else for him. Right, right. So you went from uh, Vermont to Providence, and then you went to graduate school at SUNY Buffalo to study with uh, Creeley and Susan Howe and Charles Bernstein. Is that correct? But Yeah, exactly. I lasted... Um, <laughs> One one year back in Providence teaching public high school, and um, I loved teaching, but I realized that the discipline of sort of telling teenagers what to do all the time and, hey, no running in the hall, that kind of thing, I just couldn't hack it. So um, I was talking to Creeley about it, and he said, well, maybe you'd be better at teaching college because you don't really have to deal with the detention slips and all that on the college level and you still get to teach. So, so then I went up to Buffalo to work with them. And did we're at this point, were you hauling around printing equipment and have, and presses or were they sitting or were they in storage? Because that's always, I think I gave up all my printing equipment when I had to move. I just couldn't <laughs> deal with it um, at one point. So I, I just, I wondered about that because, you know, for a, a letterpress printer, um, it becomes increasingly difficult to be mobile. Right, right. It's a lot of weight to carry around. Um, so I left that press in Vermont, and um, just as sort of a funny aside, two or three years later, this guy called me up and he said, hey, you know, um, I'm, I'm looking at your letterpress, and I, I was wondering if you'd be interested in selling it to me. And I said, you know, why, why don't you just keep it? You know, it's, it's yours. Enjoy. And then some time passes and this big box shows up in the mail. And I open it up and there are these um, prints by Alexander Calder. Mm. And a little thank you note from the guy who took the press. 
And he said, you know, I, I got these prints from my um, uh, grandfather, who was William Burroughs' uh, psychiatrist. Oh, my so God. Burroughs would, um, <laughs> you know, the, his grandfather would write Burroughs, uh, you know, scripts for um, opioids. And Burroughs would give him art in exchange or manuscripts or things like that because, you know, the, the, the money thing. So, um so that's just kind of a sidetrack, but um, kind of an interesting story, I think. Nice trade. I think a Calder for a, a, a small clamshell press, not bad. Um, I think we're all happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think you did well. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, when I got to Buffalo, I started poking around and asking if there was a, a press in town. and. One of the art teachers said, like, oh, you know, there is this room where there's a whole bunch of, like, letters and old shit on the floor. Um, I think it might be what you're talking about. It might be a letterpress, but no one's been in there in, like, 20 years. Uh, so long and behold, there's a beautiful press sitting there. So in a way, I kind of got a, um, a free private studio for the whole time I was in Buffalo, which was great. Oh, that's you were lucky. And so, did you have to clean it up and put it back in order? I mean, what and what kind of a press was it? Vandercook four flatbed cylinder proof press. Yep. And everything was actually in really good shape mechanically. The press was just fine. So all I had to do was oil it up, and it was good to go. Right. Well, actually, the flatbeds are much more forgiving. I think uh, for not be you know in disuse. I think are. Um, you know, as a compared to say a Heidelberg or something like that, where um, there are a lot more moving parts, I think. Right, right. And they're pretty simple to understand. You know, there's something really profound about, you know, like when your um, cell phone breaks and you go to the Apple store and you sort of hope that the 19 year old at the Genius Bar can fix it for you, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But there's something, and at the same time, there's something really nice about being able to just look at a machine and say, oh, I think I see what's wrong with this. Right. Well, I think also for people like me who are not, I, I printed, but I never considered myself a very good printer. A flatbed proof press is much easier. It's more forgiving um, and less um, complicated to get right and easier when you make a mistake to correct, I think. Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, making mistakes is the nature of setting type. So you were lucky to have, a, you know, have a press like that to work on, uh, but also very big and heavy as, as you know. Um, so how long, how long are you in Buffalo? Uh, too long. Uh, <laughs> I'd say, um, five, maybe six years. Hmm. And were you mostly, were you, were you taking a degree yeah i was working on a um a, a doctorate in in what was it in poetics or um yeah that was in the poetics um program as it was with um creeley and um susan howe charles bernstein uh as faculty um young me kim oh tony conrad was wonderful so for for a moment there, there was a really wonderful um, group of professors and students. Um, we had a lot of fun, and and of course a um, 
glorious special collections library. Um, oh, yeah. They set out to buy every book of poetry written in English, basically from 1900 through the present. I, I, I just lived in that library. Um, you know, um, they, they had everything. Yeah, it's pretty. I, I have always wanted to go there. I've never managed to. I mean, Buffalo is not the easiest place to get to, um, at least for me somehow. But yeah, it is a spectacular library and uh, pretty great to have that there for you for all those years. So were you, um, th that's when you were you beginning to publish as cuneiform then? Yeah, exactly. That's when the first um, cuneiform books um, started to appear. Just kind of finding my footing, you know, uh, totally unoriginal idea of um, wanting to publish chapbooks by um, younger or emerging poets at the time. And um, then the chapbooks sometimes turned into artist books. And would you say, uh, would, could you identify a guiding aesthetic or was that also, you know, something that was changing and it would begin, you know, beginning to be formed, but kind of uh, changing over time? Yeah, I would say that um, that's a good question. I, I don't think there was a very clear aesthetic. It was kind of just, I'd read something in a magazine and say, hey, you know, I, I, I like this poem of yours. Could you send me some more of your work? Or I'd go to a reading and bump into somebody whose uh, poems I appreciated, and so uh, in a way, it was much more social than having a um, a project or a mission or something determined from the outset. But I think what what you just described is very much at the heart of a lot of uh, literary presses, and that's the you know this enthusiasm of reading that leads to the idea of sharing. Um, I've always thought that that was kind of central to the to the um, idea in a lot of ways that um, it's you publish what most moves you and share it with your readership, whatever that may be. And sometimes it's accidental. Sometimes those enthusiasms are kind of quirky. They don't necessarily form a whole. Um, maybe over time they do, uh, but they can kind of go in various directions. Um, so that even even for those publishers who do have a, a kind of cohesive aesthetic mission in mind, um, sometimes the you know you have these accidental enth enthusiasms, often occasioned by social interaction. You know the readings, or you know someone you know sends you some poems that you've never seen before. Um, to me, that makes it really interesting. It's always personal, so it makes it harder to. Uh, define. Yeah, so, I mean, so well said, David. Um, it's really like the publishing, in a way, is just a, almost an extension of the writing or an extension of the reading. Um, you know, one doesn't wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to be a nature poet or something. You know, you just kind of look back 20 years and you say, oh, I guess that's what I did. Right. <laughs> Right. I also, I do think, I, I don't know, I, maybe I'm just projecting my own uh, vision, and that is it seems like it changes, though. There are times when things are mo more cohesive. You know, sometimes you're in a place where things are 
vital and making sense. And just by the accident of being all in the same place at the same time, you're part of a uh, a group. You know, you can think of that as New York for many, you know, some of the New York school um, poets being in just the same place at the same time. And then other places like San Francisco. I mean, these are the big ones, but Buffalo would be another. And it, But it, it seems to be so variable and accidental that a press emerges because of the uh, the individual, like yourself, but also within a kind of milieu, a group of people who happen to be at the right place at the right time. And that it, it's not that it creates a movement, but it creates a, a kind of notion of, uh, of uh, congruence. Right, right. And it's interesting, you know, um, you know, most books are very portable. So, um, you know, one has their sort of immediate uh, neighbors in the poetry community. And then um, all of these outposts, you know, you're sending, you know, books all over the world. And there's, um, I, 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 I wonder if you've had this opportunity, but, you know, you visit somebody in the most unlikely place and you look at their bookshelf and like 90% of it is just like yours. Right. Yes. Um, yes. That, that's like a, a sign of a certain kind of familiarity or community. Well, I think probably if you went around the country to see people who are doing similar things to yourself, you would find that. And not necessarily your own, you know, that not that their own books would match yours, but there would be a sort of similar uh, orientation. I think that, yeah, I, I, I have certainly run across that myself, although not to the point of feeling like this person and I have so much the same experience that we could be doppelgangers. I've never had that experience, but that kind of sense of uh, like, oh, I've found another um, uh, uh, soul that I could relate to definitely by virtue of books, because the books are so, I think you, what you said was really striking, that they're portable, that they're a form of sharing that culture, sharing our, the culture in also a, a kind of manifest way that, and this is not to go off on digital, but it, I, it's, it concerns me that if I walk into your house, I can see the books you read, but I have no clue what, uh, is your digital experience because it's not visible. That's always struck me as uh, uh, a challenge, you know, in terms of this social interaction going forward for, for people today who don't have as many physical experiences, but have more digital experiences, they must find a different way of sharing. Right. Right. I mean, I, and I also just wanted to say, you and I have never met before, um, and we our correspondence has been sparse. Um, but we're having this conversation about something very particular, so <laughs> I think that speaks a bit, or sort of illustrates the, the point about community and the book as a portable object. Um, common points of reference, yeah, and also I think cultural that. If you, uh, this is sort of what struck me about, I, you know, the fact that we don't know each other well, but the there are all these touchstones that we actually share, um, not only among 
poets and writers and artists, many of the people that you list in, you know, in various places as important to you are people that I felt the same way about. But also I think that in the, um, you know, the poets, the, um, the publishing is that you would look at the same kinds of in, um, uh, exemplars that I would, we could share, you know, we may not have exact, uh, exactly comparable experience, but if you're interested in poetry and you're interested in printing, you're going to know about a lot of the same people. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So that kind of makes it easy in a lot of ways, that's sort of like, uh, you know, two people who meet each other, but they both grew up in the same milieu can have a conversation, um, even though they never met each other before. So uh, also we have, there's an age difference, but I think some of what I what I see in this cuts across uh, time as well, uh, that because the book as artifact uh, could be, uh, you, you, we could hold the same, we, we could each hold the same book, one of, and my experience of it might go back 50 years and yours maybe 25, but we're still experiencing the same object. Right, exactly, exactly. So I like that, <laughs> you know, that kind of um, uh, mutuality of experience, I think is, it's important. It makes a culture cohesive and maybe, you know, is one of the reasons why our culture is not cohesive anymore. Um, but that's a whole other discussion. Right. <laughs> but to get back to the ebook um, or the digital book, there is something uh, that, that's very mysterious and anonymous about it. You know, if you're sitting in the um, cafe and I see that you're reading um, what? Uh, a book of poems by a poet that I know, um, you know, printed in a relatively small edition of, say, 200, 500 copies. I'm going to walk up to you and say, hey, David, you know, um, I've read that book, too. Even if I don't know you, um, I'm going to want to talk about it with you uh, because it is sort of, um, you know, if there's 200 copies of a book in the world and you see someone else reading it, it's sort of like finding a stranger on a desert island. Yep. That's true. I, I think I've noticed that actually in subway cars in New York or in cafes where you'll see, I could see if, if someone was reading a book that you published, I would instantly know that that person was someone I would possibly be able to talk to. Right. Where one's reading the iPad, uh, the, there's no opportunity. Right. Unless you happen to get close enough to look over their shoulder and realize that they're reading an interactive version of, oh, I don't know, you know, uh, Robert Denot or somebody like that, that you think, oh my God, you're reading French poetry. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it, it is harder because the, you know, you don't see the cover and you don't see the spine. Um, you know, I, I've thought of, you know, I think that it's in a box, it's in a black box and that's makes it impossible. There's a certain, you know, on one level that makes it private um, and less social even though the digital experience is so uh, itself wildly portable uh, because you know with a print book if i am interested in reading a book i have to actually contact someone or go to a store and buy the book 
Uh, if I buy, if I order a book from you, I'm going to wait, you know, three or four days for it to show up in the mail. Um, so the distance between me and the experience uh, is greater than if I desire the ebook and I can just press a button and it's in my iPad instantly. Exactly. Exactly. And sharing it, although that's another thing, and of course, I I think this is a real concern about ebooks, and that is the lack of ability to share because the um, walled garden approach prevents sharing. Whereas in with print, I can hand you the book and say, "Would you like to borrow my book?" Right, right, and you know, no, um, you know, young child today is going to inherit their grandparents' um, ebook collection. Right. Um, you know, so what did grandma and grandpa read? Well, we have no idea. Right. Unless you have their login and password and their computer or their iPad and it still works. <laughs> well, 50 years from now, uh, right. you know, we'll see if that iPad is still working. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, and one of the things that um, I think differentiates the uh, art artisanal publishing is uh paper quality you know a lot of the paper that is published on today even in commercial books will not survive um 50 years or 100 years whereas the kinds of paper that you print on uh will in fact last um eons not just a lifetime right right and that's and that's one of the things that i actually really like about the ebooks um you know um I, I i don't read them personally but you know if you're gonna buy a um detective novel at the airport you know something to entertain you between point a and point b and literally throw it away when you get to your destination that's kind of a waste of paper um so the ebook i think is fine for that and um any book that sort of works as a database like i think the oxford english dictionary is a lot for me a lot better online mm -hmm. than yeah um it's fast you know telephone numbers any anything that's sort of a database and searchable um it's just so much faster but if you really want to sit down and read poetry philosophy uh, you know anything that sort of mandates or higher level thinking personally i can't do that on a screen i can I can skim things that are, you know, basic news articles and things like that. But if it's really requires concentration, I can't do it on the screen with all of the other distractions um, that it, the screen has to offer. Well, I think about that in terms of production. It's or that was sort of one of the questions I was kind of mulling over talking to you about is, you know, that um, proofreading in modern uh, book production where it is a digital workflow, uh, a lot of people proofread on screens. And I've noticed that um, I think that there's there are things that people do not see uh, very readily when they're proofing on screens. But when you're proofing a, print, a piece of paper, a printed book, especially if it's a book that you're, was hand set, but that would be even more unusual. But if you print, if you proof on paper, it, it's actually much, uh, a warmer and more uh, welcoming experience and makes proofing a lot easier. Oh, absolutely. I was talking to a friend about that very subject this morning. Um, and I still insist, uh, you know, I teach classes on um, editing and I insist that the students 
print out the entire manuscript and use a pen or a pencil, um, and then go back into the um, computer to uh, mark those changes. But um, I mean, honestly, I hate to complain, but like trying to use track changes on a Google Doc uh, just about <laughs> it killed me working on this last book. You know, I said to the publishers, uh, Ugly Duckling, sorry guys, like I've got to print this out and send you my comments longhand. You know, I can't do this Google Doc track changes thing. Um, it's just chaotic. Mm. Well, how many uh, how many books do you produce it, uh, yourself? How many, and are you still printing all of your books uh, letterpress, or do you do some using um, offset printing? Oh yeah, um, most of the books I make are um, printed offset. The letterpress is great, but um, and a lot of fun to use, but very, very time consuming. And um, if I wanted to make a book that's say over a hundred pages and um, and I want a thousand copies. Mm, no, you, no, you can't do that letterpress. <laughs> no, I mean, it, uh, easier if you have a, um, a Heidelberg or um, an automated press, but if you're um, working with a flatbed cylinder proof press, uh, that, that would be absurd. Well, I think it, it, that's sort of, I, I would say, observably, most of the independent literary presses that began using letterpress have mostly in their histories moved to offset at some point, re, you know, maybe re, uh, re, um, retaining letterpress for specific smaller editions or for teaching or... Um, you know, continuing to do chapbooks, letterpress, but doing bigger books offset. I think that's probably true, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I was just thinking about, you know, when I first knew Alan Kornblum, he was printing mostly letterpress and he had a job shop and printed in West Branch, Iowa. Um, I think after a while, you know, when they moved to Minnesota, it it began to evolve into more uh letter uh, less letterpress more offset i think that's i think that's true for charles alexander with chacks and but right. the, the exceptions i think are probably the true letterpress only operations like perishable press that walter hamity had um but very those seem to be fewer and more oriented toward book as object rather than uh book you know, where the poetry is, um, at the core, I would say, uh, maybe I'm wrong in that estimation, but I always felt that it was more about the printing than it was necessarily about the, uh, literary component for a lot of the, um, letterpress printers. I, I think that's absolutely true. And, um, and, and, you know, Charles Alexander has talked about this, um, Rosemary Waldrop as well. Or let me just, uh, you know, Rosemary was explaining that one of her early books came out with the Perishable Press um, called Spring is a Season and Nothing Else. And she was thrilled to have this beautiful book. But at the same time, um, a, a, a little bit dismayed that she had this beautiful book. but. Um, 
every copy was going to a special collections library. Hmm. So there's no, um, there's no real audience. There's no opportunity to share that work with the world. And, you know, and Charles has said the same thing about his, um, Jack's press that, um, as he's gotten older, he's realized that, you know, if he's going to publish a book by, um, particularly a younger writer, it's nice to have 500 or a thousand copies so that the, the word can get out where if you do 26 copies and they're, you know, $5,000 a pop, um, the audience for that book is going to be radically different. That's true. Collect either collectors or, um, libraries, as you said, but there, you know, there is a place for that as well. I think the, you know, the book as art object or expression of art, the combination of art and writing, I think has some value. And there are many pieces of art that are not replicated. So you, you sort of cross over from being book to being art form. Um, and you have to, artists think differently perhaps than writers do in terms of the viewership and audience. Although I think reading an, uh, or viewing an, uh, a complicated and expensive artist book is actually more difficult than looking at a painting on a wall because the handling of the book will destroy it eventually. Right, right. Um, and, you know, it's interactive, it's um, visual, it's material. There's a relationship between... I mean, that's one of the things that... Honestly, it fascinates me about the book more than any other art form is that it's all about relationships, the relationship between um, paper to the binding, the binding to the cover, the typography to the text, the image to the uh, <laughs> book as a three-dimensional object. You know, it's just, um, you know, when people really go um, all out um, with the book as object, it's fascinating to see how many relationships there are and how complicated these relationships can be. No, that's true. I think it is not recognized as much as it should be as a, it's both, I was thinking about talking about collaboration because that's something that is obviously of interest, but it, you've kind of, you've redefined what a collaboration is. It's not just between individual artists or writers, but also between materials and between the conception of those materials and uh, how they all work together. And in a lot of ways, it's like a, a production of a play. Um, there are so many complex layers of interaction that go on uh, before even an audience is involved, which creates a new form of collaboration. Right, right, which is what makes it so interesting. You know, the, the music at the play was great, but uh, the lighting was terrible, so I couldn't <laughs> see the, uh, the costumes, you know? It's, right. And, and but you'd have the same thing with uh, typography and paper and um, the cult, you know, the the uh, uh, the hue of the paper and the shape of the letter forms, uh, the amount of type on a page, all of that, um, and as well the interaction between the writer, especially a poet, and the work on the page. Um, I keep thinking about this because I have a a poem of Robert Duncan's in a broadside that Charles Alexander printed many, many years ago that Duncan annotated by hand to show all of the, it's not clear whose mistakes they are, whether they were 
typographic or in the original poem manuscript itself. But, you know, the, the collaboration kind of is redefined then because the uh, poet is interacting with the letter forms on the actual printed page in addition to the original interaction between the printer and the poet. Right, right. That's fascinating. It is really interesting. Well, you brought it up. I thought it, you you made it uh, interesting for me in a different way than I'd been thinking about it. So I appreciate that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it just sort of in practical terms, do you have an idea uh, kind of of how many books you feel comfortable producing in any given year? Or do you think of it in that way or do you just basically print and publish as projects come along that interest you? Uh, that's a good question um, because I think it follows up uh, perfectly with what we were just discussing. Um, there are, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think of publishing as an art form. So just as a um, painter doesn't set out to make 12 paintings a year, um, you know, I don't set out to uh, produce a particular number of books a year. Um, I try to um, put the books out when they're as good as they can be. And if it takes a whole year to make one book, that's fine. Um, and then other years, uh, they'll be more productive. And of course, the other factor is that books take a long time to make um, for any number of reasons. They're... Um, it's hard to anticipate when they'll be done if one is not running a um, press as a business per se. So um, I'm amazed that some presses, uh, smaller presses can say, yes, one year from now we will have um, 12 books available and you can buy a um, subscription where um, the way I do things is much more, um, erratic and i just never know when uh you know the poet might need another year to finish the manuscript so what do you do say <laughs> hurry up and get it done no you just gotta wait and see right when it feels right well that is i think yeah you know, the the model that i think of in that respect is jonathan williams jargon press which you know very well <laughs> and um where jonathan had some you know he numbered his books so that each book was numbered by when he decided he would publish it not by when it actually came out so that by the time he got up into you know jargon 90 or something there were still a few books from the 50s and 60 numbers that had never been published oh i didn't realize that that's yeah. incredible yeah no he it was i think that's the perfect example of sometimes the book just took a really long time <laughs> to come and some of it was funding and some of it was you know the author and some of it was the publisher but i do yeah i think that what you've expressed is exactly um you know well probably also because you you're basically a single person operation is that right i i, I get by with a little help from my friends um <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, um, I don't have a, um, a partner in this, but I have a lot of people who, um, uh, who I'm very grateful to for um, helping in all sorts of ways. 
Now you're in Austin, Texas. Are you? Do you teach at the University of Texas? If do I have that right? I work for the University of Houston. Right. Oh, it's University of Houston at Victoria. Is that right? Yes. Right. So is the press connected to? Um, I think it, I know it was at one point, but is it still connected to the university? Um, in a very slight way. If I'm, te- you know, say teaching a um, editing class, I can bring live manuscript into the classroom and sort of use that to um, help the students learn how to, um, you know, edit a text or um, copy edit a text. That, that's really about the extent of it. And do you feel that? Um, I mean, do you do you have a sense of wanting to continue the press? the way you've been going or do you have any ideas or things that or well i guess i should phrase it differently is there anything that you would like to do that with publishing that you've not been able to do yet that you kind of imagine or desire to do at a certain point in the future depending on resources let's say wow that's a great question i have a lot of ideas for um certain artists and writers that um, that I would like to work with or um, collections that I would like to edit myself. Um, but yeah, no, um, no big program. Um, the only thing I could say is that um, uh, over the years I've uh, had the great privilege um, to work with um, writers uh, of, I kind of hate these expressions, but like writers of greater notoriety, starting off with, you know, um, my peers and people who had never published a chapbook before, and then, um, you know, being able to work with a poet, uh, an artist like Jim Dine was like a dream to me. Um, And now I'm kind of going back to working with um, people who have never published a book before, because I think I was under the um, misguided impression that um, younger poets today, you know, they've got their um, Twitter feeds and they're so, um, and they're, they're printing on demand and they've got websites and blogs and blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking, well, you know, they don't really need old guys like me for anything anymore. You know, they can do it all themselves with the computer. But I'm finding that that's not actually the case. They still want um, recognition and validation from an older generation. And they're still interested in beautiful books. I think as I will continue to work with more well-known authors, I'm also going to sort of get going again because I'm intensely curious what, you know, poets in their early twenties are um, thinking about and writing about and, and publishing them is one way to keep my ear to the track. I think that's really good. I, I have noticed now being old enough to have friends who have children in their early twenties and later who are writing. And so I periodically I'll get to read some work being done by people like you're describing, you know, recent graduates or, you know, early mid twenties, people like that. And I'm struck also by not only how interesting their writing is, um, it's different from other work that I've read, 
but it's it's still it has this it has a lot of vitality and a lot of a lot going on. I think that they're in in some ways more interested in the physicality of objects. You know that they are there are small efforts to create chapbooks just as you did earlier. They may not have the technological um, capabilities. They don't have letter presses, but they're doing these little small books that are, um, I think, because of the value of the physical in a digital environment. Um, you know, it's a probably trite to say that, but I think it's really observably true that as the world is completely moved into digital usages, um, the physical book becomes more valuable. It's just the way vinyl is now popular for music, um, having been, you know, neglected for 25 or 30 years. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, there's a wonderful book called the, uh, revenge of analog. And, and I think, you know, the computer has done a lot of wonderful things for design. Um, because now we have the option of um, publishing in so many different ways that didn't exist 50 years ago that I, I, that I in my observation, um, when someone wants to make a physical book now, they're doing it not by default, but because there's a reason they want that book to be physical. So in a way, I think that we've sort of seen a renaissance in the book in the last 20 years where like the designs are getting much more interesting because it's a conscientious decision to make a book when there's um, so many other alternatives. So if you're going to actually go to the store and buy a book, you're going to buy a beautiful book. You know, you're not going to buy a um, crappy paperback. You know, you, you want something that's going to, you know, put on the coffee table and people are going to talk about it. Right. Or no, in fact, what you said earlier, I think is true. And that is for commodity books, the ebook is fine for, you know, the book that might've been a mass market paperback 40 or 50 years ago, that will be an ebook now so that the, um, remainder of the field in a certain sense can be devoted to much more interesting, um, graphically and physically, uh, created books. Right. I right. hope, I hope, I mean, you know, there are other issues too, you know, cost and, uh, distribution and all of those factors that make publishing complex, challenging, <laughs> and sometimes rewarding, but not, you know, sometimes really painful. Um, so, and just kind of, as we get toward ending are just, you've created, um, uh, a, a nonprofit. So you have a, uh, a, um, 501c3 for the press. Is that correct? Yes. So you can get donations. That's good. Yes. Please send your donations. Too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you no, know, seriously, I'm happy to give the address when, uh, when we post this, I'll put, put the address for donations there because I do think that, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with asking for money and it's for a worthy cause. I think, uh, uh, producing, uh, not only beautiful, but literary, literarily important books is worthy of support. Thanks. I do too. Um, and it's also one of the things that surprised me about getting nonprofit status is that I could finally 
talk to people who are not in our world, so to speak, about what I do. Because people would say, oh, you make books. In, is it a business? Well, no, not really. Oh, well, it's a hobby then. No, it's not really a hobby either. You know, so being able to just say, like, I run a literary nonprofit, I think for the, um, yeah, for the rest of the world, they're like, oh, you run a nonprofit. I understand what that right, is. Right. Well, it's like being an off-Broadway theater. I mean, I think there's to complete legitimacy. Anybody who thinks of theater, obviously they think of Broadway, but the minute you say off-Broadway, uh, that's nonprofit world. And um, I think literary literary publishing is no different. Um, you know, it, it just hasn't been established in people's minds that literary publishing is a just as valid as commercial publishing. It just happens to come with a perhaps a narrower range of audience possibilities and finance differently rather than uh, from profit. It it will be. Um, either a combination of revenue and, and donation. Right. Right. So I think you're, 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 that's, I think that's valuable. I mean, obviously the complexity for anybody who's doing what you do is you then have the added overhead of bookkeeping and, and, uh, you know, tax filing and all the thing. And you have to have a board of directors, all those things that go with being a nonprofit that create um, a, an additional layer of work. Right. Right. Unfortunately, we have um, terrific board of directors um, and a wonderful organization here called um, Texas Accountants and Lawyers for the Arts that can help with any complicated uh, legal or accounting questions. And so it's a, it's a good place to be. That's great. Well, it's really, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you, Kyle. This has been really fun. We get to talk about things that I think are really important. And uh, I learned a lot talking to you, which is great. So thank you for doing this. Oh, well, thank you so much for all of your wonderful questions, David. I've, I've enjoyed this. Thanks. This has been Publishing Talks, a podcast about books and publishing. I'm David Wilk, your host. I've been talking to Kyle Schlesinger about Cuneiform Press. I will say it a little differently than you do. I know we, we pronounce it a little differently, but it's C-U-N-E-I-F-O-R-M Press. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs>